Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast season seven finale. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. I hope that you're all keeping well this week. It's been great to see a lot of you have been traveling recently. I've added a lot of places to my travel wish list. I'm just back from uh, my first trip abroad this year, actually, ticking a destination off my own travel bucket list that's been on there for years, Lake Como in Italy. So I was really lucky because I uh, was out there reviewing some incredible hotels for my work. And after a couple of trips there were postponed because of covid finally getting there it more than met my expectations if you haven't been there you know picture these verdant steep steep cliffs plunging into this shimmering water when the sun hits it it looks like it's covered in glitter with classy reva speedboats whisking glamorous people you know to dinner from one into the other at these endless array of waterfront uh, amazing hotels and restaurants and these picturesque villages and towns that have somehow just sprung up on the cliffside defying science i mean full disclosure pretty much all hotels on lake como are pricey to stay in because they can get away with it there's always this demand from tourists but if you're looking to visit on a budget i'd say that an airbnb or an apartment rental is the best bet but if you're looking for a really special hotel stay maybe you've got a special occasion coming up one that I stayed in that made me think of the podcast actually because I felt like it's a real hidden gem partly because it's a boutique hotel so it's on the smaller side and also because it's on the quieter side of the lake was called Villa Lario Um, It's about 20 minutes drive from Como itself and is a real architectural wonder in its own right most hotels on the lake are either a kind of lakeside setup or you're perched like quite high up on a cliff with like a really epic view but at Villalario you're lucky because you get both it's located basically on a sheer cliff face so you take these outdoor glass lifts some of the best views that you'll ever see going up and down in these lifts from the breathtaking infinity pool and the picture perfect restaurant on one level and then you go down to another level and there's a recently restored 19th century palazzo and the bar two acres of gorgeous gardens right by the waterfront and we stayed down on this level right by the waterside and those suites were really unusual because they are all at the water's edge so you literally open your bedroom windows and you hear the water lapping and that was truly blissful i can't recommend it enough Unlike some of the other hotels in Como, which go to town on their historic aesthetic and antique design, which that that might be what you might be looking for in your trip there, that sense of history. Villalario interestingly blends the old with the new really to great effect. So you still feel the history of the Palazzo, but it's very minimalist and modern and refined. So when you combine that with the view that it looks out onto, it really is a photographer's dream. You'll see my attempts on Instagram at Holly Rubenstein if you want to have a look. Another person who loves Italy is my guest today. In fact, she spends part of the year there each year. This is someone I have wanted to book on the podcast since we launched. Today, I am joined by a legend of stage and screen, Britain's naughtiest national treasure. It's the award-winning actress, Miriam Margulies. 
Miriam's movie roles have included the BAFTA award-winning Mrs. Mingott in Martin Scorsese's The Age of Innocence, and of course, Professor Sprout in the Harry Potter films. She's appeared in a host of hugely popular TV shows from Blackadder and Miss Marple to more recently The Real Exotic Marigold Hotel and Call the Midwife. And she's also a prolific travel documentarian filming in and around Australia, US, Scotland, to name just a few. As a lifelong lover of the author Charles Dickens, she presented the BBC documentary series Dickens America and toured the world with her acclaimed one-woman show, Dickens Women. Miriam spoke to me from her Australian home and she was just so engaging and generous with her time, both before, after and during the interview. We actually had a little pre-chat a couple of weeks ago which was lovely getting to know her um that's quite unusual we don't normally do that and I really enjoyed having a, a chat beforehand and I really felt like uh, we'd had a special bond I hope to think that we had a bit of a special bond by the end and as you'll hear coming up she has such um a lovely pace of speaking very soothing and, and calming in this interview and and very evocative so you know grab a cuppa settle in and enjoy listening to the very widely traveled and very entertaining Miriam Muglies. Miriam Margulies, welcome to The Travel Diaries. Speaking to me from your home in Australia, how are you? It's so great to see you. Well, it's exciting to be going on a journey with you, remembering other journeys that I've been on. Exactly, exactly. And tell me about where in Australia you are now. I'm in a place called Robertson, New South Wales, which is approximately 90 miles south of Sydney. Mm -hmm. in a part of New South Wales called the Southern Highlands. Everybody knows Kangaroo Valley, which is at the moment practically submerged in water. But Mm -hmm. nobody seems to know the Southern Highlands, and I quite like that. I found the place because I was in Babe. I played the the voice of of Babe's mother, the dog Fly. And it was filmed here, and George Miller very sweetly took me to meet the dog, because I think he thought it was important that I should know who I was voicing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, it, it was lovely to, to meet the dog, of course, and the pigs and all the other animals, which I did. Um, but it wasn't necessary, strictly. <laughs> However, it did bring me to this part of the world that I never heard of or known before. I fell in love with it immediately. It's a bit like Dorset. I think it's one of the wettest places in Australia, actually. Um, But it's very green because of all the rain. And it's very beautiful and rural, Um, sheep and cattle and chickens. And and there was some land going and we bought it and we built, built the road and then we built the house. Oh, that's so glorious. I actually looked up um, some like on Google Images, the, the place where the area where you live, because I hadn't heard of it. And it, it reminded me actually a little bit of England. It is it is really kind of bucolic. It is. It's very like England. I don't know if that's why I liked it so much, because I now I've been around Australia several times and I have understood the particularly Australian landscape, which is quite different. Mm. And at first, I found it rather unpleasant. But now I've got to see the beauty of the desert and the scrubland and miles and miles of 
not very much really. Yeah. And of course, the coastline of Australia is extraordinary, mm. really beautiful. So I, I've got fond of Australia, but this little bit of it, I, I do love. Your partner, Heather, is Australian and you became mm. an Australian citizen in 2013. So Australia clearly means an awful lot to you. Yes, it does. I, I love it. I'm quite critical of, of aspects of it because that's my nature. I can't accept things. I, I have to want to make them better. But it is a refreshing place. It's an optimistic place. And it has energy. So those qualities I like very much. Mm. And so you're based between New South Wales, England and the Tuscan Hills of Italy, which to me sounds like the ultimate dream setup. Very jealous. What in a nutshell do you get from each of those destinations? Like how do each of those places like nourish your soul in different ways? Italy has been nourishing the souls of of countless travellers through the, through the centuries. I love being in a rural situation. So Italy and Australia, for me, are rural places. I love a quiet village, and Italy provides me with that. The flavour of Italy is so rich, and the culture, the history, the, the wonderful paintings, the churches... I'm not religious, but I like to go into a church and look at the pictures mm. and look at the gravestones and the wonder history. about the people. Yes, the history. So that, that is certainly something that I get from Italy. From Australia, well, it's hard to know. I mean, it's, it's a country on the move. It's always changing. And it's quite energ energetic. I, I can't really analyse things very well anymore. I just accept them. And I, I feel very, very at home in this quiet pastoral place. We're high up in the hills looking out to sea. I can, oh, see, the, can see the sea. the Pacific Ocean from where I am. Oh, how lovely. I can see the lights on the ships. And it is a privilege, really. It's a privilege. Oh, wonderful. Well, we're going to go on a journey through the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries. How you're going to pick seven destinations of all the places you've been, I don't know, Miriam, but we're going to start at chapter one, going right to the very beginning. That is your earliest childhood travel memory. I think that would have to be when, as a little girl, I was taken to Kent, to the Kent coast. That's where I saw the sea for the first time, this shimmering, strange thing at the bottom of the road. And I can remember that I thought to myself, oh, that's the sea they're talking about. <laughs> and I got up very early in the morning and slipped out of the house. I was about four, I think. And I toddled down the road to the cliff edge. It was in Kingsgate, which is a a small suburb, I suppose, of, of Cliftonville and Broadstairs. Mm -hmm. And my mother, when she discovered, when she woke up, that I wasn't in the house, of course, she had a major conniption. Uh, she must have been terrified. And ran all the way down. 
Yes, she was. And she ran all the way down the road screaming, Miriam, Miriam. Because <laughs> I thought I'd been, you know, on a voyage of discovery. And indeed, it was a discovery. And I still own a little house not that far from Kingsgate in a village called St. Margaret's Bay, which was a smuggling village in the 18th century. And I bought that from a couple who had owned it uh, for a while, and they'd bought it from Peter Ustinov. No way. And he had been stationed there as a gunner, as a bombardier, <laughs> during the Second War. And then after the war, the Ministry of Defence sold off this funny little cottage, and he bought it for 100 quid. 100 well, I paid quid. Considerably more than that when I bought it. <laughs> but I still own it, and I call it the gun emplacement. Mm. And it is available for rent. Is it? Okay, right. Well, I will put a little hyperlink to that in the show notes so that we can all check it out and, and go and visit. How wonderful. And you also, I think, reading your book, I know that you went up to Glasgow as well as a child where your father was born. And you returned there recently for last year's documentary, which I loved, The Lost in Scotland with Alan Cumming. So what did it mean to you to go back to this place that meant so much to you as a young girl, as a child and to your family as a whole? It's always emotional to return it is. to somewhere that has a special significance for you. And Scotland, to me, means my father. It's where he was born. He never lost his Scottish accent. He used to have a dram of whiskey on a mm. Saturday night once the, the stars had come out because he was an observant Jew, which I am not. And it, it is a, a very lovely emotional return to the world of my childhood because we used to go to Scotland every year because we used to go and see Grandma, mm -hmm. Grandma Margulies. There was Grandma Walters, that's my mother's mother, and Grandma Margulies was my father's mother. Both very strong-minded ladies who lived well into their 80s. The Scottish one was, to me, very delightful because... She spoke with that very strange sound of the woman who was actually born in a place called Grodno in Belarus. But she came to, to Scotland, to Edinburgh first and then to Glasgow when she was a baby. And she never lost that strange mixture of the two <laughs> sounds of the Eastern Europe and also Scotland. That's and so I love to, I love to give that voice again because most of the people who spoke like that are dead. That is something I've never heard. I, I love hearing you bring it to life. You're keeping it alive. Well, I'm trying to uh, hold on to things that have gone. I think it's what happens when you get old. And now I'm about to be 81. In two days, I shall be 81. Oh, happy birthday for two days' time. Thank you. Thank you. And the, the memories of one's youth become even more poignant and important as you get older. And, and so when you went back to Scotland most recently when, on, on this lovely road trip that you took, did you discover 
new places that you hadn't been to that you thought were gorgeous that you'd recommend that we we try and visit ourselves? I would suggest the Isle of Harris. Oh, I loved the Isle of Harris. I went there when I was playing the Mother Superior in Call the Midwife. Yes. And we shot an episode, a Christmas episode, in fact, up in the Isle of Harris. And it's one of the most sumptuously beautiful places I've ever been. I just loved it. And they have a distillery for whiskey, which is at the moment they're waiting for the whiskey to mature. So they made gin instead. And the, and the gin from Harris is it's <laughs> wonderful. Is it, It's quite remote to get to, I imagine. It is. It's uh, the outer Hebrides. Mm. So it's a, quite a long way away, but it is utterly beautiful. When I I haven't been to the Outer Hebrides, when I envisage it, I can't. I mean, even the name, the Outer Hebrides, it feels like the kind of edge of the, like that, the very edge of something. The edge of the known, of the known world. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Did it feel like that? Did it feel like you were kind of really on the edge of something there? Yes, it did. It really did. The people are gentle. There's not too many people. There are very few trees. And um, the houses are small and really they were for, for crofters. They're just two up and two down and sometimes not even two up. And they're very simple houses. Mm. But then on the other hand, you get great castles as well. There was a great disparity as there still is, and unfortunately, between the rich and the poor. And the rich really had a great time and the poor had a lousy time and some things never change. Yeah, this is true. And in fact, we're speaking um, after Sinn Féin has been newly elected in, in Northern Ireland. And I kind of wondered what you thought about Scottish independence, whether you think that they'll follow suit as somebody who has an affiliation with Scotland like you do. Well, I was never a particular Scottish nationalist. It never... It never cropped up. But now the catastrophic enormity of Brexit has reared its head and bitten all our lives in half. I rather hope that Scotland does become independent, because if it does, I shall ask for citizenship. (laughs) I'm entitled to it. My father was born in Scotland. And then I shall be able to ignore Brexit and use the world and Europe particularly as my oyster which is what it should be yeah do you think your dad would have had the same point of view I don't know but I think he he might have done because he loved Scotland and whenever uh, the bagpipes played on the radio or on television he would he would get quite moist eyed and um, he loved looking at the tattoo the Edinburgh tattoo I I think that to have another culture in your world is is enriching. So Mm. I feel very proud that I've got both Scottish and Jewish heritage. And I think the people from Ireland feel the same. What a rich, beautiful heritage they have. Yeah. So, you know, 
there it is. I wouldn't have thought of being an independent Scot before, but now I do. Hmm. Well, we will have to see what happens. Let's pause there and move on to chapter two. And that is the first place that you fell in love with. The first place I fell in love with, I think it would be Cambridge and the Fens. Mm -hmm. So you were at university in Cambridge? I was lucky enough to be accepted into Newnham College. I didn't know much about Cambridge. I didn't really know much about the Fens or the Broads or anything about East Anglia. But it has a particular magic. Every place you go, I suppose, has its own poetry and its history and has a way of infiltrating into your consciousness. But I was three years in Cambridge and I have always and ever since loved those flat expanses of East Anglia with the great cathedrals of Ely and the King's College Chapel rising out of the flatness and the the water everywhere in East Anglia you can find a river, a stream and the sea of course mm. and I just love it. So Cambridgeshire and Suffolk and Norfolk to me are absolutely glorious places. They're not often explored. Yeah. Do you go back there still? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. I love finding little villages in Norfolk and staying there. And you know, one of the wisest men in England, Stephen Fry, he lives in Norfolk. So he can't be far wrong. (laughs) This is true. Did Did you meet Stephen at Cambridge? Oh, no, because I'm much older than him. No, I met Stephen when we did Blackadder together. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know when it was, the 70s, I suppose. And of course, fell in love with his brain and with the sweetness of the man himself. He's a very delightful, generous person. Oh, I can imagine. I'd love him to come on the podcast too. I think I'd be quite intimidated to interview him, though. He's just another incredible talent. Well, he wouldn't be. He's not intimidating. Is he not? He's incredibly erudite and knowledgeable and wise but he's not intimidating because he's so enthusiastic about his subject whatever it might be that you're talking about and so interested in you and what you're doing but you wouldn't find him intimidating i promise oh, what a lovely quality a lovely quality in a friend yeah hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Going back to Cambridge, um, you were involved in the famous Footlight Productions and um, I know you've spoken about how that was like a slightly kind of bittersweet experience in that it didn't allow It was entirely in. bitter. Entirely, entirely bitter. bitter. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> really? Nothing sweet about the Footlight. Many, many lovely things in Cambridge and the friends that I made there that I still have. But uh, that was a particularly sour episode of the Cambridge life that I led. And that was because it was a kind of uh, chauvinistic institution, would you say? Oh, entirely. Yeah. Entirely. In those days, women were very much in the minority. Mm. It, it was very difficult to get into Cambridge as a woman and particularly... Uh, into the arts subjects. And you were conscious of the privilege of it. You knew that you were pretty special to be able to get in. And I think we, we were kissed with, with privilege, really. We, we should have been more aware of the life around us, of people who didn't have so much and weren't so lucky. But, you know, young people aren't like that. We, When you're young, you just forge ahead and do what you want to do. You don't really look around much and see what other people are doing. I think more importantly, I realized what I didn't know. And what I don't know gets more and more every year. Not the opposite. <laughs> I don't know more and more every year. I know less and less. <laughs> Did you know then that you wanted to be an actress? I think I knew by the end of Cambridge. I certainly didn't know at the beginning. I knew that I wanted to take advantage of the possibilities of acting with the various university societies in which every college has one. And there are something like 30 colleges or more in Cambridge. I was in an all-girls college, which I wanted. I wanted to go to Newman. I loved those late-night chats in front of the sputtering gas fire holding a mug of coffee. No, in my case, a mug of hot chocolate. Mm -hmm. And talking about life and love and the pursuit of happiness and what life would hold for us. 
And of course, we were on the brink of our lives then, and we didn't know what, what was in store. You just hoped that you would be happy and busy and productive and be useful. I don't think I was any of those things. I was entirely selfish and thoroughly enjoyed everything that I was doing. <laughs> and it was there that I decided to be an actress. And then I got into the footlights and I asked various radio producers and other people to come and look at me, which was perfectly usual. Everybody was doing that. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started as an actress in radio. I went on the BBC drama repertory company. And that was fun. And I got a, a flat in London. I started just sleeping in various friends' houses all around London, not with them, just in them. <laughs> and then I got my own place, which was in uh, Gloucester Terrace in what I call Paddington, but my mother called Bayswater. And that was a very good time of my life. But one of the things that I should mention was that at Cambridge, in the winter holiday, in the Christmas holiday, we would take a Shakespeare play around Europe. And I think that was the start of my travel experiences. Because I knew about holidays, but I didn't really ever go abroad. My parents never went abroad. From the time that they got married, when they went to Norway, down the fjords for their, for their honeymoon, hmm, they never went abroad again. Interesting. I wonder why that and was. So, yes. Well, it was partly because of the war and partly... I think my father was not a, a worldly man, and I think that he would have found it difficult coping in a country that he didn't speak the language. But to then choose the Norwegian fjords as your honeymoon is quite intrepid, really. Yes, I think it was, and they had a wonderful time. They went on a, a, a cruise. Oh, how lovely. And so I think everything was taken care of. And um, mummy remembered it always, of course, as you would, as being a, an amazing experience and seeing the midnight sun and just that she'd never been abroad again or before. That was her only time of going abroad. But I was determined because my parents never did go abroad. And then when I got the chance to do it in, in Cambridge in the winter holidays, we went in a in a big sharaban uh, in a coach, driven by a wonderful chap, a Cambridge bloke called Harry Law, and he was a delightful man. And we had such fun and such laughs, such parties, such drunkenness, <laughs> such um, explosive relationships. It was an amazing experience. I went four times. And was there a, a destination on the on the tours that, you know, really got you excited? Being one of the first places you've been abroad that you were just like, wow, this is incredible. I think the very first place I ever went abroad was Basel. And uh, it's not a, a particularly fabulous resort or, or destination, 
But it was extraordinary to me, the fact that they had these strange eiderdowns, which now we all have, these duvets, but I've forgotten what they were called, a decker, I think it was called. And this, it, you, you just enveloped yourself in this wonderful cushion <laughs> that went the whole length of the bed. And, of course, they, they were uh, driving on the wrong side of the road and there were mountains behind. And then in France, when we, we went to France and Switzerland and Germany, and in France, the public lavatories were just two big fit footprints. Yeah. Well, I'd never had anything like that. <laughs> I don't think much has changed there. <laughs> no, perhaps it hasn't. <laughs> but it was just a lovely experience. And when we were in Zurich, we went to the Linton Strongly chocolate and cake shop. And that was magical. Gosh, I loved that. And I also opened a Swiss bank account which I think I still have. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love that. So we're in this chapter, first place you fell in love with. Did you have any memorable holiday romances over the years? No, I don't. I don't think holidays were where I, I found sexual excitement. Because I was gay, um, and I, I knew I was gay by then, I didn't uh, look for a romance. I think I was pretty sure that one would come along eventually. And I think I had to wait till I was 27 before I met my partner. But um, I wasn't promiscuous on holidays at all. I suppose I sort of snogged and that kind of thing. Yeah. But nothing very penetrating, if I may use that word. <laughs> So let's move on to chapter three, and that is the place where you learn the most about yourself. That's an interesting thought about learning about yourself. I think it would probably be Israel. I went to Israel first when I was about 17. And like a lot of Jewish young people, I went to work on a kibbutz. Oh, really? And I loathed it, absolutely loathed it, partly because it meant that I had to wash up for 500 people. And after a while, I thought, I, I don't really like this. <laughs> I don't enough. like washing up yeah. for two people, never mind 500. <laughs> and I was enchanted by the beauty of Israel, the history of Israel, and the food, and the people were very very alive, very confident. They were remarkable people. And what has happened to Israel since distresses me enormously because I am now not sympathetic to that country. Mm. But it, at the time when I went, I was. But I realized that I didn't belong there. I realized that although they were ostensibly by people because they're Jews and I was Jewish, I didn't fit in. I didn't belong. I didn't join in. I was, again, I was the other. And that's quite an important thing to learn. And when you say that you didn't feel like you 
you were the other, you felt like you were the other, that you didn't fit in. Was that because you didn't um, hold the religious faith that they had? Or was it something beyond that? I don't think it was so much the religion, because at that stage, I probably did still believe in God, uh, which I really don't now. I would say a militant atheist now. But I think it was, there's a kind of, feeling of superiority that Israelis feel that I didn't feel. I didn't feel superior. And even then, I didn't like the way that Arabs were treated. And so I felt um, I felt cut off from what most people were thinking and feeling. I didn't want to join in with the way they celebrated and and yet I loved the food absolutely loved it the food was was and is terrific an Israeli breakfast is the best breakfast in the world what's in an Israeli breakfast everything (laughs) (laughs) eggs fish meat vegetables cheese bread croissants biscuits fruit Everything that you can think of is crammed into an Israeli breakfast. It's thrilling. And I did enjoy it. You've been back, I know, many times since. And you've been to Palestine and done work, charity work there. Yes, I have. And I feel very much more at home in Palestine than I do in Israel. That's interesting. I like Arabs. I get on with Arabs. I feel fun and friendship with them. The Israeli, I find um, quite grating and uh, difficult to get on with. It's what's happened, I suppose. It's just, it's sad because I would like to be at one with my people, but I'm not. And I have to accept that. Yeah. Well, Moving on to some of your travel documentaries, which were all different voyages of discovery. I mean, so many of the the, the real Marigold Hotel in India, your big American adventure, almost Australian. L- thinking about learning about ourselves, is there one that really stands out to you um, right now when you're thinking about those experiences as one that was especially enlightening, where you did learn an awful lot? I think the American one had a, a great impact on me. I always knew that I loved India. I mean, I didn't have to think about that. I love India. I would perfectly happily live in India. I think it's a wonderful country. But America is much, of course, closer to what I'm used to. They speak a form of English. (laughs) (laughs) They are recognizably part of our world. But I felt completely complete alienation from them. And I see the country now in, in, in a light of pity. I pity Americans. I think they have been corrupted by that orange idiot. And they are suffering as a result. And I realized that I didn't want any part of that. And, and for some years I had lived in America. 16 years I had a, a flat there. But I have no no regrets about leaving. That country is not for me. 
when remind me when you were making that um, series, which states you were traveling through? We went from Chicago to New Orleans, down what they call the Rust Belt, which is a bit of America that people don't always visit. Mm. It's uh, very much, um, you know, not wealthy, not particularly educated, working class people, rural, some of them, and um, in factories and places where the heart of the of the towns have been eviscerated by economic privation and drug taking. So it, it's a very arid sad place Mm. and I feel very sorry for America and when we were speaking last time you were saying that you predict that that Trump might win again next election god I hope not I'm sure he will I thought it when I when I was there making the program because the election was about to be held and I knew that he would win then because of the rabid hysterical devotion to what he said and what he thought. And I feel the same now. The people who support him, they are looking for leadership. They're looking for somebody to to make the world right for them. And they believe that he is the person to do that. Yeah. It's not really like there's also a great um, competitor at the moment. So I really hope that someone rises to the top same, same as here in the UK. I mean, you know, there has to be a, a decent opposition for that change to be able to take place. I know. Well, it's just unfortunate that the, the, the left everywhere, and I'm on the left, the left everywhere is fragmented and inefficient. And I don't know what we can do. We can just keep hoping and try and engage the interest of, of more people to stand for parliament and stand for office. Mm and carry the message on to a more positive and upbeat note chapter four is your all-time favorite destination my favorite chapter well i think it's it's all the countries beginning with i india (laughs) italy and ireland I thought you were going to say and indonesia though as well right well i could add indonesia very easily because I'm looking at my table here in Australia, which is full of Indonesian artifacts. Because when we built this house and furnished it, we went over to Indonesia and got a a container and filled it with Indonesian furniture and antiques and china and, and textiles. And it is wonderful. And the people are wonderful too. So I don't know what it is about the letter I, but all those destinations are irresistible. Hmm, with an I. Uh, if we were to just deep dive into India for a moment, I know that you said you could just live there. It's a destination that is so popular with um, with my guests, but you know they all pick different parts because it is such a varied country. Is there a particular part of India Um, or region of India that you would say to someone who hasn't been there at all, this is the place you must go if you only to go there once? I haven't been to the place that I would pick, which is Kerala. 
I would love to go to Kerala, which is in the south, and it is uh, known as a, a communist state. Um, and I think I would quite like that. But the place that I knew that I liked the most was Calcutta. It's a teeming, thriving, busy city, millions of people, many living on the street, great poverty, but great vitality. And I think that's the thing about India that reaches me, the vitality of the people, their energy, even if they are desperately poor, and even if they are crippled and and hungry, starving even, their eyes are dancing. Their bodies are covered with the most exquisite colors. The materials, the textiles, the shirts and skirts, the women shimmer as they go by. It is ravishing to look at. I love the curries. I love the food of India. But I will one day return and I will go to Kerala. Mm. I feel that it's waiting for me. Oh, how wonderful. You, did, am I right in thinking that you actually met Mother Teresa? Was that in Calcutta? Yes, it was. When we arrived, my driver said to me, did you know you are on same plane with Mother, Mother Teresa? I said, no, really? Said, oh, yes, oh, yes. She will go to her ashram and every, every morning she will see people. You should go. And I thought, yes, why not? What a chance. I'll never have another chance to meet Mother Teresa. So I got up at five in the morning and the driver took me to her ashram. And there she was. The door opened. A nun opened the door and she said, have you come to see Mother? And I said, yes. She said, follow me, please. And we went to a huge room with loads and loads and loads of people. And uh, she was just there, but not holding the service. There was a, a priest holding the service. And of course, it was very Catholic because it, this is a, a, a Catholic world that, that she lived in. She was all in white. She had current eyes. They were black and darting and very profound <laughs> and after the service I had collected all the different soaps and shampoos that they give you in hotels every day you get showered with these things and I thought I'll keep them and I'll give them to Mother Teresa so she can give them to her her nuns when they go out and wash the poor and the dying and the desolate and so I handed her this bag of stuff she called over an assistant to take immediately so she didn't have to carry it. And she said, she looked at me with a deep and searching look. And she said, where are you from? And I said, um, from England, mother. I said, oh, England, how is it there? And I said, well, it's not great at the moment, which it wasn't. Um, it, I was there with my show. I did a tour of the British Council. We went to 10 Indian cities, north, south, east and west. It was a wonderful experience. And anyway, I showered her with these toiletries. And when I left, 
I knew that I had witnessed somebody special. Yeah. She had that quality that was immediately apparent. This was a woman set apart. And although my driver begged me to take communion, he was sort of in the crowd as well. And he said, go on, go, take, take the communion. This is a very special moment. I said, no, I can't do that because it's not my faith. Take it, take it. It doesn't matter. Jesus will come to you anyway. And I thought, I'd bug it if I want Jesus. But anyway, I just, I didn't. But I took away with me the knowledge that I had met somebody very special. What an experience. So chapter five is your hidden gem, Miriam, a place that you love that my listeners might not know so much about, your favorite secret place. Well, if I tell, of course, it won't be a, a secret anymore. Would, would you share a secret with us? Oh, yes, because I think that I can't keep secrets anyway. <laughs> I can only keep other people's secrets. I can't keep keep my own. Well, I, I don't I don't think that there's anything amazing about this place, except that I loved it so much. It's called Giglio. It's the island of Giglio. Oh, and where's that? Off, off the Tuscan Mediterranean coast. And it's where that ship went aground and people were killed. And the captain was, I think, imprisoned for negligence. And I went there, oh, about 30 years ago. And I, I've always loved it. It's just an extraordinary, quiet little place and very, very natural and simple. I like simple places. I'm not, I, I find the Vatican, for example, embarrassing. It's just too much. Too much. Somebody, need, somebody needs a smack. <laughs> so bringing to life Giglio, what does it look like? like? What does it feel like when you arrive there? You, you take a ferry and um, I think from Orbitello and you see sitting in the ferry as you see the, the land come towards you. It's just not a very big island with a typical island look about it. I mean, with houses rising in tiers from the, the coast and uh, just a little, very small, unassuming. I can't uh, describe it as glorious or remarkable. It isn't. The, the glory of it is the simplicity of mm. it. Mm. A few tavernas a few fishermen's cottages. I think it is these small places that take my heart. I don't like big cities anymore. I've gone off them. Reflecting on, I mean, such an illustrious career and so many highlights, is it your work with Dickens that was your career, has been your career highlight so far, would you say? Yes, I would say that. I won't probably do Dickens' Women again, which was the, the play that Sonia Fraser and I collected together, created together. I don't think I can do it again. It's too exhausting. But 
I think it was me at the top of my powers. And I'm glad that even just once I realized my potential. I realized what I could do. And I'm so pleased I did it. It's something I'm very proud of. Yeah. I, I, and something that I know that um, you don't consider so much of a career highlight, but you'll have to indulge me one question. <laughs> is is your, your role in the Harry Potter films as Professor Sprout, the herbology professor? I know from your book that you are sick and tired of being asked about Harry Potter, uh, but I... <laughs> I, I I feel like with my generation, I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? It just is such a part of our lives, people who are kind of my age, I guess. So I wondered if I could ask you, was there a sense of magic when you went onto the set, even if you haven't read the books, which I don't believe you read all of them, did you? Was there a sense of kind of intangible magic? The intangible magic was when I went to the bank. <laughs> no, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not wrapped in Harry Potter. I think it's a jolly good yarn for children. I am so happy that so many people enjoyed it and had a, a kind of life fulfillment from entering into the, the world that J.K. Rowling has created. But it wasn't like that for me. It was just a job. It was a jolly good job with tremendously nice people. And I'm still in touch with nearly all of them. But it's not the be-all and end-all. And um, I, I do get, I suppose, rather ridiculous to be irritated. I mean, I'm very grateful to it because it has made me much more famous than anything else that I would ever do. More people have seen me as Professor Sprout, remember me as Professor Sprout, uh, and than, than any other thing in my, in my entire career. But I don't mind that. It's just how it is. Do you get kind of Harry Potter super fans stopping you and asking for photos and things like that in, in the weirdest of places? All the time. Really? All the time. It's as if it was made yesterday. Yes. Really? Immensely powerful, immensely remembered, immensely loved. And people who grew up with it are now teaching their children and reading it to their children. So mm. it's a continuing extravaganza. <laughs> I think it's a great world that they that was created, but it's just not for me. Fair enough, fair enough. Oh, I'm so pleased you were in it, nonetheless, and, and brought your special quality to it. Oh, I'm pleased I was in it. I'm, I absolutely am grateful to it. It's done a lot for me as an actress, and I think probably as a person, but it's not quite my cup of tea. <laughs> so the penultimate chapter, um, Miriam, our, our second to last chapter, is the is your worst travel experience or the place that you'd never go back to? Well, strangely enough, I think it, it is a, a, a place in Italy. It, it's called Rimini on the Adriatic. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the first places I ever went to. I think Germany was actually the very first place, in, interestingly, being Jewish, and I went skiing there, and I certainly would go back 
so the Harz Mountains in Germany. But Rimini, I went with a few, uh, about three girls who were all looking for boyfriends, which I wasn't. They were silly and giggly. And Rimini seemed to me to be full. It was packed with people, none of whom showed the slightest interest in me. Why would they? And um, it was just a disaster. One of those places that just stuck in your memory for the wrong reasons. Yes. I, I hated it. I hated the music that was always being played. I hated the, the way that the girls that I was with kept looking for men and kind of dangling around trying to get a boy. It's just not for me. Am I right in thinking that Rimini is like kind of the Bournemouth of Italy? <laughs> oh, Bournemouth is infinitely superior. <laughs> uh, I don't know how I would... No, I think it's more like South End. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so you've taken us on an amazing voyage around the world, Miriam, and it's been so much fun. Our final chapter is Chapter 7, which is the destination that is at the top of your travel bucket list. Where would you like to go? The place that I, I've never been that I would like to go, I think is, well, I've said Kerala, but I think beyond that even is Africa. I've never been to Africa. I would like to see where my adopted elephants live. I support the Daphne Sheldrick uh, Wildlife Fund. And she's dead now, but her daughter continues the movement, caring for elephants and rhinos. And you can go and see them. And if you support them, you, you can support them by adopting an elephant or a rhino. And I've adopted three elephants. And I'd love to go and see them in their natural habitat, being looked after and cherished and safe. That sounds wonderful. I hope that you get there soon. Well, I do too. I mean, I haven't got that much time left have I so I've got to better hurry up but I would love to see I went once to a South African safari park and I saw wonderful things I saw a cheetah really really close and it had it had gone um, AWOL it had it has escaped from its keeper and it stood just two feet away from me and it could have wiped me out with one slash of its of its paws. Um, and I remember the, the chap who was supposed to be looking after it said to me, don't move. And I oh. said, don't worry. <laughs> no way was I going to move. And it's a very wonderful thing when a wild creature looks at you. I saw when I was in China uh, with the Marigold Hotel people, we were taken to the giant panda cage in Chengdu. And I saw this wild creature, this wild giant panda. Looks incredibly, you know, like a child's toy that you could cuddle and put your arms around. And it looked at me and I looked at it. And that's one of the most exciting things that's ever happened to me, to oh. be seen by a giant panda. Oh. 
Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Miriam Mugley's Those Were Your Travel Diaries. Joining me from the other side of the world. Thank you so much. What a pleasure for me. Thank you. Oh, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed that conversation. I could listen to Miriam tell stories for days. If you feel the same way and you want to hear more from Miriam, she is heading on her upcoming book tour next month in honor of the paperback release of her fantastic memoir, This Much Is True. So head online for tickets for that. And so that's a wrap for season seven. Wow, I can't believe we've made it. Before we wrap up, I have a few thank yous that I'd like to say. I mean, this has been such a rewarding season in so many ways. Firstly, obviously a huge thank you to my wonderful guests for sharing their stories and their time. You know, it was a total honor and a surprise to be picked as podcast of the week by the Times and the Radio Times as Trav Media's broadcast program of the year to be featured by Apple Podcasts around the world on multiple occasions. That support has really meant the world. A huge thank you to my sponsors, without whose support the podcast simply wouldn't be possible. And lastly, but by no means least, most importantly, a huge thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in each week. I'm just so happy that you're here. So I'm taking a couple of months now to plan for season eight and to head on some travels here in the UK. I think I shall be back with new episodes in September. So stay tuned. Of course, you can stay in touch in the meantime on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein and I'll be posting about my travels and my forthcoming guests there. I hope you all have a brilliant summer, safe travels and speak to you soon. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.